You're listening to DB Diary thanks to Lakers Dragon Boat Club, the home of dragon boat paddling in Brisbane's Forest Lake. Hello and welcome to episode two of DB Diary. I'm Aidan Taylor. Now, last year, you may recall a group by the name of Boating for Brains, who broke the record for the longest dragon boat journey in the world and fundraised for crucial services treating kids with epilepsy at Melbourne Children's Hospital. But you've only heard part of the story. Only three weeks ago, they found out they made the 2020 edition of the Guinness World Records. And while that's a big achievement in itself, little is known about the backstory, which I think is the more interesting achievement of this whole journey. So for more on this, I'm joined by two of the parents with the vision for Boating for Brains, Peter Christen and Alex Evans. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to have you on board. I could hazard a guess as to what's under your Christmas tree this year. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it's going to be uh, any dragon boat related uh, paraphernalia, but uh, the, uh, certainly there'll be some copies of the books going around. Yeah. Now, Alex, you, it's a good time to start with you, actually. What has this experience meant to you both? Yeah. I would say from my own experience um, and from my perspective, and I can probably speak on behalf of some others in the crew, this is certainly one of the most um, amazing experiences of my life. You know, the the whole teamwork that was required to get this thing up and running and to achieve it was exceptional. And we drew in, you know, people from throughout our sort of friendship groups from the dragon boat community we had people coming from across australia we had one person who even was international who flew in for the event so it it really was an amazing experience just pulling together as a group of people and what can be achieved when uh, you're um you know focused on a common goal the actual paddle itself was between the 3rd and the 7th of november last year but it was only made an official record quite recently and peter that took you by surprise didn't it um uh, no but we got the official word for the record in February, I think late January into February, right, uh, where we got the certificates and the official word from from Guinness that we had broken the record, but they weren't able to confirm if we were going to get into the book or not. And it was only at what two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, when one of the paddlers' daughters saw a book in the bookshop and and opened it, and there was us. It was exceptional to sort of be able to get the book as well. You've both come from really different backgrounds, Alex. You are from all the way over in London. That's correct, yeah. Okay, and then, Peter, am I right in saying that you're from Brisbane? Uh, yeah, a bit north, Maribor. And what brought yourself and Alex together? Yes, Alex and I met at the hospital at the Royal Children a few years ago now. My daughter Olivia was having an operation, and a few weeks later, while she was in recovery, Alex's daughter, Bunny, was having a, a same operation, and we got put in contact with each other by the Simon, the the head of neurology and said we'd, we'd be good to, to chat and, and, um, and I guess sort of a support network to, to go through and talk about the similar operation. And Alex, I can hear that you sounded like you had something to say there as well. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, our whole lives uh, were turned upside down by what um, happened to our daughter and um, oh, she was impacted by severe epilepsy at about five and a half months of age and um, you know our daughter was having a a terrible experience she was having about 100 seizures a day as a baby it was horrendous Um, you know we were unable to get on on top of the situation in the UK and we very fortunately had a contact at the Royal Children's Hospital my wife's from Melbourne and we followed up on that contact and uh, the um, um, who's my wife's godfather who's a retired neurosurgeon 
Um, and we came over for the operation, and as Peter alludes to, is when we were put in touch by the hospital, and it was an enormous reassurance to meet Peter and um, and his family and and uh, their daughter, who had just gone through a similar procedure to the one that our daughter was just about to undertake. After the operation, when the care of the hospital was so fantastic, we decided to relocate permanently to um, to Melbourne, and, and like Peter describes, we just completely sort of we almost evacuated our lives in in the united kingdom we packed up everything and and came over and have been living in melbourne ever since to go through an experience like that and feel that level of care and dedication i think that was the starting point and peter i think and his family had a similar experience we definitely felt we had an enormous debt um, paying to the hospital and so being able to assist them with their the financing and funding of their um day-to-day operations is, is just a wonderful thing. And Peter, if we could go to you for a second, can you just explain a bit more about how this um, specialist neuroscientist that you're able to fundraise for can change the lives of people? The, the neuroscientist specialist helps out in, in many different ways. In, in epilepsy, hundreds of seizures a day creates a function, and both Alex and my daughters have this where effectively the pain is constantly seizing and it can't develop naturally, it can't have any clarity and normal things can't happen. The ability to to stop that sometimes means you have to be fairly aggressive with how you disconnect certain sections of the brain that are causing this. So the operations are typically once a week and they last for 12, 14 hours, but the neuroscientist overlays PET scans and CTs and MRIs and a number of other bits of information to create detailed models of the brain so they can understand what exactly is happening, look at it very uniquely and specifically and understand how they can address the issue with the least amount of negative side effects. And how are both of your daughters going at the moment? Well, um, you know, Clementine, our daughter, has, you know, she's almost five years down uh, the line now from, from her operation and she's in mainstream school. Um, with an aid, and she's got, you know, a number of challenges related to the fact that she lost a lot of her brain in the operation, but she's been seizure-free from, um, you know, the immediately following the operation that she had. She has an opportunity um, to lead a normal life. We don't precisely know how that will unfold as she gets older, but she at least she has an opportunity to have a normal life, which she didn't before, and for that we will always be profoundly grateful to the hospital. And Peter, um, as for your child? Uh, yeah, Olivia is, again, hasn't had a seizure since her second operation, which was three and a half years ago now. Uh, and she's, she's at school and a, and a happy, cheeky little kid that's just doing things that little kids do, which is all I could ever ask for. What sort of scope of costs are we looking at to fund one of these nurses for a three-year period as, as you did? Well, what we were able to do with the um, help of the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation um, was when we first went to um, the neurology team and said that we wanted to try and raise, um, you know, a significant amount of money for them as we realized that a key person in their team who is the neuroimaging specialist, um, that was funded out of research um, grants and private donations every year. And it was a... um, you know, an uncertainty and an anxiety within the neurology team on an annual basis whether they were going to be able to fund this position. Um, So we went to them and said, look, we really would like, you know, to try and help you address this problem. 
And I suppose there were two stages to it. One, we wanted to um, fund the neuroimaging specialist position for as long as we uh, we could. And we got the agreement of the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation to match fund whatever we raised. Um, we raised in the end 270,000 um, and they've match, fund that, uh, match funded that, which means that the position has been funded for three years. And we've also, we're hopeful um, that the position will be funded centrally by the hospital after the three years have expired. So, you know, that was really, I suppose you could say that was our long-term goal from this undertaking was to make sure that that position, you know, was funded by the hospital into the future. Mm-hmm. And is there any idea as to how many of these specialist sort of scientists there are in Australia? No, I don't. There's very many, though. There only a couple of them at most. I'm not sure. There's only one at the Royal Children's. There might be yeah. one in, in Melbourne for, at the adults or in Sydney, but I don't believe there, there are there's too many. No. I think the important thing to bear in mind here is that the equipment in today's medical world is unbelievable. I mean, it is so advanced, it's quite scary, but it also relies on having interpretation and analysis from high-quality, well-trained people um, to bring it to life. And, you know, the exceptional thing here is that, you know, when we were in London, we had every single scan you know, similar scans, you know, done, uh, but the actual analysis was lacking. No one could find an underlying cause of what the problem was and why this epilepsy had suddenly started in our baby. The Royal Children's Hospital took those scans, the scans that were done in London, we sent them over, they modelled them and reworked them in Melbourne and fairly much immediately said, this is your problem. Because of that expertise, we, you know, have a very strong... um, commitment to trying to fund that uh, expertise on an ongoing basis. You were saying early on that you didn't have it easy and initially you had a bit of, I wouldn't say backlash, but a genuine concern from people high up that a journey like this couldn't be done. What sort of reception did you receive? Well, I think we, um, uh, you know, it had an understandable reception, which is that Peter and I and, and our, at that point, small group of people who in February last year, had kind of come up with this concept. And we uh, emerged sort of one day in in the Dragon Boat community in Melbourne, down in Victoria Harbour in the Docklands. You know, sort of, we joined up with one of the clubs down there. And I think, you know, the kind of established Dragon Boat community was a bit puzzled uh, by us arriving and uh, claiming that we were going to break the world record and kind of, you know, that, that established community of, dragon boaters didn't probably quite know what to make of us and i think that probably persisted for for quite a while because it was such a you know the 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 kind of length of the journey that we were undertaking was so far beyond i think what is the normal parameters of the sport and it being generally a short distance type of sport and you know an endurance event is around 30 35 kilometers that kind of thing so Someone saying they're going to be doing 100 kilometers a day for a number of days in a row is, is sounds a bit far-fetched. So um, I think Peter would probably agree that they were kind of like, yeah, um, not quite sure who these people are and what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think there was definitely some some apprehension from the, the, the Dragon Boat fraternity originally, and, and fairly rightfully so, that we weren't Dragon Boaters uh you know, experienced dragon boaters and, and anything, just people that said, well, we're 
to do and were very determined uh, and but not very aware of dragon boating. And I think that was probably one of the benefits. We hadn't talked ourselves out of it before we knew about it. We'd said, no, this is possible, we can do it. And then over time realised potentially how difficult it was and, and how big it was going to be, but we didn't talk ourselves out of it before. I think a lot of the experienced dragon boaters took it as impossible before they were proven that it was possible. And and speaking of some sort of difficulties and challenges with paddling, I was going through your Facebook pages and you documented your experience of the training on social media. And what stood out to me was this post from the 18th of August last year, which read, still paddling seven hours and 60 kilometers later, a tenth of what we need to paddle in November. Now, just thinking about that, that's enough to put any seasoned paddler off their game. So how did you keep morale up through the entire lead up to the actual event? Peter, if we could start with yourself first. Yeah, I think I think there was probably morale was. I guess when we started, like a year earlier, I'd, I'd asked a handful of people to join, and I thankfully had good friends, Alex as well, being one that, and some others that just said, "Yeah, I can do that." And then sort of, went, "What's a dragon boat?" Um, so they were they were sort of very much oh, like, "Yeah, we'll do this," and I want to get into the book of records, or I want to sort of fundamentally changed the lives of hundreds of kids by doing this and that was pretty easy to to motivate people because I think after that paddling we went to the hospital the next day and showed people around and that really reinforced the expectations of why this was so important to Mm. a number of people they weren't deterred by the amount of effort that it was going to take they thought it was a great adventure but then also going to the hospital and showing people around, meeting some of the people and meeting the specialists, uh, they went, wow, this is this is why it's so important. So being a bit uncomfortable for a few days is not that big a deal compared to, to what happens here. And Alex, who was your team made up of? There were kind of different constituent parts. At its core, there were four fathers of children who'd had major operations, neurological operations at the Royal Children's Hospital. And I suppose they were the sort of the core of the team, and then there were friends and um, and family of related to um, to those four people. Through sort of our friendship group, we got to about half of the boat, and then ultimately the other half of the boat came from dragon boat clubs in Melbourne. I think there's around half a dozen dragon boat clubs in Victoria Harbour in Melbourne, and, and we were really delighted in the end to have representation from four of those clubs in the boat. So. And then you, I think it was you, Peter, who was saying that you had some, a paddler from Singapore who joined you for the trip. Yes, as part of the, the friends and family, there was a friend of mine from work that worked from Western Australia. My brother lives in Queensland, a different friend that lives in Sydney, and a, a friend that was in Taiwan that, that came down, and, and myself living in Bendigo at the time, Alex and his friends living at, at all corners of Melbourne and surrounding. So there was a, a long a long list of, of states and territories that people came from to, to be a part of this this journey. But how many training sessions did you have in the lead-up? We had hundreds of training sessions, if you include gym sessions and hopping on the rowing machines and personal training sessions. Wow, you guys went all out. Yeah, yeah, there was there was lots of... But, uh, but as a group, I think we had three 
sessions as a group where we only had probably 50% of the team there at, at, at any one time and it was a different 50% each time because people had work commitments or travelling from Western Australia to Melbourne for a, a group training session isn't something you can do that frequently. We had never all been in the same place at the same time until 12 hours before we started paddling. And Alex, it sounds like you have something to add to that. Well, I, I just want to pay credit to, to everyone in the crew. First of all, I found it just remarkable um, that people un, under their own time and their own expense came in, you know, three times um, from different corners of Australia and some from uh, overseas, flew into Australia, um, you know, um, booked hotels and came to training um, weekends in Melbourne. And it's it's really quite remarkable if you think about it, you know, the, the time and the cost that people put themselves through. And then to actually do the event in itself, it took took us five days. We, we allowed six days was what we were initially going to try and do it in. And we managed because we made good progress to do it in five. So it was a considerable commitment from everyone in the boat. Speaking of that commitment, how was this 560-odd kilometre journey broken up over that four-day period? Well, you know, the amazing thing was on day one, um, up until, as Peter says, you know, the, the furthest we'd ever been as a crew before was 60 kilometres in a day on the Arrow River and in albeit atrocious Melbourne conditions on a winter's day. Um, and, um, you know, so that was that was the kind of outer limit of what we knew. On the first day, I think I'm right in saying, uh, Peter, that was that we did 120 kilometres? Yeah, I believe so. It was about 120 k. Yeah. You know, the Murray is not a fast-flowing river. You know, parts of it, you might as well just be on a kind of thin, very long lake. I'd like to pay credit to someone in the boat called Andrew McPhee, who's a, um, a father from my children's school. He took a big interest as an endurance cyclist in the fitness of the crew. And he really, particularly, you know, the middle-aged dads like myself, who, you know, were completely off the pace physically, um, he managed to, with some pretty poor material, get us ready to do it. And... Um, you know, Adrian Magani, who was our another person, a strength and conditioning coach, who's a well-known character in the Melbourne sort of dragon boat scene. Um, they got us ready to do it. And they said, I mean, Adrian said, you know, you need to be able to do two hours straight on a rowing machine if you've got any chance of doing this. And we were all, I was doing two and a half hours straight on a rowing machine by the time we did the event. Uh, which to me is a miracle in itself. I think it's a miracle for many of us, even the more seasoned paddlers. And I've got the exact distance here that you covered. So it was 563.889. Peter, could you just explain how does that compare to the previous world record, which um, from what I remember was uh, was set in America? Uh, yeah, so they set the record in America on the Missouri River, I believe, uh, eight or nine years earlier. And it was... 520 kilometers uh, around that sort of number 520 or 524 40, was it or maybe five, yeah something around that yep yeah so um, we, we beat it by 20 or 30 kilometers not exactly smashing it out of the park but definitely uh, moving the moving the needle a bit further to make it difficult for someone else and I guess the other one is that three or four people had attempted in between 
the record being setting and us breaking it again and, and failed. And they failed before they got in the boat, I guess. They either talked themselves out of it or were unable to coordinate logistics. And while we've talked a lot about the rowing and so forth, the biggest effort was on the team on the sidelines that picked up 20 five tents, hmm. packed them up and then rebuilt them at where we we're going to go, whole food van, masseuses or physiotherapists and a whole cooking tent and barbecues, all of that sort of stuff made it so great that everybody on the boat after 12 hours just sort of paddled, hopped out, fed, got a massage, went to sleep, hopped up the next morning and then rinse and repeat. The, the amount of work that the support team, that it wouldn't have been possible because there was so much more to, to do there. So the, the team was another 20 people that outside of the boat that, that really made it possible. Um, for a community group, you know, that's that's an incredible achievement. That's the sort of professionalism that you'd come to expect from an ultramarathon team. The logistical aspect of it is something you're quite passionate about too, Alex. But before going into more depth about that, can you just explain briefly, Alex, where, the, where you started and then where you ended? In terms of the journey on, on the Murray River? Yes. Yeah, we undertook um, the journey from uh, Yarrawonga to Swan Hill. Another of our um, uh, claims to fame on that journey is that we were the first dragon boat to have ever passed through to Rumbury Weir. They actually um, very sweetly opened up the lock for us. The whole lock team was ready when we arrived, and um, we just went straight into the lock, and they let the water down, and off we went you know, downstream. It was really incredible. And I've actually got the, the final moment that you crossed the finish line here, which we'll play right now. So at that moment, what was being said on the boat? You know, were you aware of the fact you were approaching the finish line? Alex, uh, sorry, Peter? Uh, yeah, we'd seen the town coming into to view and we knew where we were, where, where we were finishing. And it was great having the, the amount of support we had on the banks there and you could definitely hear them from the boat cheering us on for that last kilometre or so. It was really good to, to be able to hear that and realise that we were at the end of the journey. And was it more a sense of relief or, or sadness that the group would be broken up after that moment? Uh, I think, think it, it Sorry, Peter. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Alex, I'll come back to you in a second. Yeah, yeah I, I personally felt great sense of joy and relief that we'd finished something. And I think while the, the team has physically gone back to their, their corners of the globe where they started, we still stay in very good touch. I think there's friends that I've got from that trip that I didn't have before that will be good friends for forever. So I don't think the team has been broken up as such. Once we'd crossed the record line, we knew roughly where we'd crossed the record line. We had a bit of a celebration there. We knew how much money we raised and it was good to get to the end there and repay the trust and the confidence that so many people had in us in donating that amount of money and giving up so much of their time and their life. That's great. Now, Alex, anything to add to that? He just said it very well. The, without the support crew, we couldn't have done the journey. The sense of elation when we arrived at Swan Hill, you know, there was uh, emotional scenes and I'm feeling emotional even talking about it now. So, you know, it was amazing. You know, we, we see that you raised that money successfully. You broke the world record. But the way that you guys organized those logistics and, and the support team that you had, you know, that's an achievement in itself. And I'm so glad that we've been able to talk today to shed light on that because it'd be a crying shame if, if we didn't acknowledge that. that. 
that's absolutely right. And, and, and you know, to anyone who's listening who has an inspiration to do something similar or, you know, anything like this, at the end of the day, the logistics is absolutely at the heart of it. And interestingly enough, Adrian Magani told us when we first came across him and he became our sort of um, strength and conditioning coach that two teams in Australia had had similar kind of ideas in recent years and both of them ultimately not got off the ground. And then logistics is at the heart of it. Uh, I'd like to pay particular credit to Jenny McIntosh, who is a mother of uh, a child who's you know, had a major operation at the hospital and her, her, her genius at organizing was extraordinary. And the way that we were able to go so quickly down the road in the, during the day was some of the genius that Jenny bought in terms of uh, how we structured our meals that enabled us to stop for 15 minutes every two hours, literally on a sandbank in the middle of the river, have something to eat, have a toilet break, and then back in the boat, bang, two hours, same thing again for 12 hours a day. And that enabled us to cover the distance. You know, along the way, we we managed to get Brighton Grammar School donated um, their outdoor education department equipment and their outdoor education master, and he ran the camp for us. That saved us around twenty to twenty-five thousand of costs in um, accommodating forty people on the Murray River for a week. That's twenty-five thousand dollars of cash that's gone straight into the hospital as a result. I think Peter's alluded to, we had three training physiotherapists who came with us for a week and gave their services free of charge. Um, that was a major benefit and something that we all look forward to greatly every day when you came in absolutely, you know, um, sore as anything at the end of the day. We had a GP who traveled down from Sydney, who was our camp GP for a week free of charge. Incredible volunteering. The spirit was extraordinary. You know, the risk management that, that Peter brought to everything as a, as a mine manager was another massive part of it as well. And that's an interesting point because, Peter, as Alex just inferred, you are responsible for the risk management aspect and it wouldn't have gotten off the ground if you didn't actually present that case to Dragon Boat Victoria. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah yes and no. I guess, yeah, it definitely would have been very different probably pig-headed enough that we would have tried it a different way, but it fundamentally needed Dragon Boat Victoria's uh, approval and assistance. We wouldn't have been able to get insurance. We wouldn't have been able to have a boat. Uh, so managing the risk of the operation was, was critical to, to getting that support. But then also, so that we did do it safely, it would have been a very different um, interview and uh, outcome if we had have got to the end of it, but we hurt someone along the way or we had finished halfway because we'd hurt someone or done something terrible to the boat and in finishing you've both spoken about your relationship with the neuro with the specialist neuroscientist can you just touch on that relationship briefly alex if you would yeah i mean um i'll pay total credit to simon harvey and his wife virginia mikes now they collectively the head of epilepsy and the um, head of neurosurgery at the Royal Children's Hospital. You know, I don't think it's many people who can claim to have met, you know, a genius in their life, let alone two geniuses. They are um, not only geniuses, they are incredibly kind and empathetic people. You know, we have a very, I think all parents of children who've been treated by this team have a very special bond with them. I mean, it was really one of the wonderful moments during the journey um, Simon actually drove up to the Murray and um, drove out into the middle of nowhere and came and joined us, um, you know, um, in the middle of the day on um, on one of the days. And it was a huge uh, moment, I think, for all of us, uh, such an excitement. And Ali, uh, Peter, sorry, is there anything else that you'd like to say on that? 
yeah, there's not much more to say. I think that the people at the hospital I can't imagine ever being able to repay them. I am in awe of the people overall. And it was always, in my mind, when we were paddling, this is just paddling a boat. This isn't brain surgery, literally. It is just paddling a boat. We can do this. If they can do what they do day in, day out, paddling a boat for six days is a walk in the park. Well, Alex and Peter, from start to finish, you haven't had it easy, but you've pulled off what is an amazing achievement that's showing the best of the dragon boating community. Thank you for opening up to us today. Thank you. And that's a wrap for episode two of DB Diary. I'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening.